man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's a Tuesday edition of the PFT PM Podcast. And before I bring in new Sunday Night Football rules analyst, Terry McCauley, one point, because I've noticed some of you asking for a return to the format that you have become accustomed to once a week. I am going to do an old school version, if that is even a fair thing to call it, of PFTPM, where it's just me for an hour. I'll answer every question that you have. I'll prattle on and on about whatever the news of the day is. And that's it. Stream of consciousness. It's a therapy session for me. I can't believe you guys actually like it, but you'll get that once per week, I promise, starting hopefully this week. But what we've been trying to do more is bring in guests who will really have time to give us an extended back and forth, some good information, good storytelling, a long conversation that you really get a lot out of. And that's what we've been trying to do more and more frequently. And on that note, I'm going to bring in today's guest. He's a longtime NFL referee, left the league this year and is now the Sunday Night Football Rules Analyst. He is Terry McCauley and he joins us now. Terry, how are you, pal? I'm doing great, Mike. Great to be with you today. Well, and it's great to have you. And look, this is a perfect opportunity because I have many questions about the way some of these new rules are going to affect the game that we love. And and I want to begin, I want to get right into it because the helmet rules, and I say rules because there are two of them, even though one of them doesn't get discussed very much. The helmet rules, I think, could dramatically change the way games are officiated, the way games are played, the way fans enjoy the game. How long do you think this entire effort, which seems to be an effort to take the helmet out of the game, not physically, literally off the heads, but the heads out of the fray, how long do you think this has been in the works? Because I don't get the impression this just all popped up this year. No, the NFL does a great job of of research. They they track every injury to the nth degree, and and they it's really a, a quite an effort from their medical folks that do that. Uh, so they've been they've been looking at this for a while, how to how to minimize the risk for for significant head and neck injury, and, and I think they you know they finally got the research together that shows this is this is one of our major factors. You know the kickoff's another situation, of course, but this this use of the helmet, the way players have been using and leading with their helmet, lowering it and putting their, their, their neck and spine into a, into a, a really bad situation. Uh, I think it came to a head uh, with that research coming in, and they decided this was the time to, uh, to make some significant changes. And what was your reaction when you first heard the, the general description? There's no ability now to lower the helmet and initiate contact. It seems very broad. It feels very broad. And based upon what we saw last, last Thursday night in the Hall of Fame game, it's going to be applied very broadly. Yeah. Yeah. My I, great question. My first reaction was they didn't put in the words forcible or punishing. Um, that was a real surprise to me that they went as far as they did right off the bat. Because the video they've shown, which I, I, I guess that you've seen as well, a lot of us have seen this video, all of these hits should be illegal. I mean, it's when the, the, the defender or even the runner lines up his opponent and just uses his helmet as a weapon to punish his opponent. Uh, so, yeah, I think that jumped out at me that those should all be fouled. But as you said, and, and as, as I talked a little bit about uh, at the Hall of Fame game, 
it's so, I mean, it's so broad. I mean, you, it has potential to, to, to really, to really have a lot of fouls in a game for this. Now we didn't see a lot, uh, in, in the Hall of Fame game, but this is still early. I, I'm not sure where it's headed. I don't know what the cutoff is going to be for when a foul is going to be called and when it isn't. Uh, because if a lot of these plays are going to meet the, the, the letter of the rule, but maybe not the spirit. Not sure. And Terry, there was a window between the implementation of the new rule and your decision to exit the NFL. What had you learned? What had you been told during that period of time about whether this was going to be applied as written or whether there was going to be some higher level of culpability that the officials would be looking for before the flag would be thrown? Uh, really, I hadn't heard anything up to that point because I, I think I made the decision in early June. The change had just been made in May, and we hadn't had a single meeting or any video sent out uh, at, at that particular time because they really hadn't, hadn't finalized what, what they thought the guidance was going to be going into the preseason. So, so between that time uh, when I left and, uh, and, and the clinic in, in, in July in Dallas, the officiating clinic, uh, didn't, you know, I really didn't get, it, get much, much information at all. How often is it that a rule says one thing as written – but there's an understanding it's going to be applied differently than how it's written. Because I look at it and I say, well, okay, this is the rule. You apply it as written. But I feel like from time to time, maybe there is a disconnect between the rule in writing and the rule as it actually is interpreted and applied in practice. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a great observation because that, that's often. There, I mean, there are often, I mean, you, 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 can, you can't write a rule that, that covers every situation for that particular aspect of the game. So there's, there's guidance, there's philosophies that we get that, that help us be consistent and you don't become overly technical about, you know, about that particular rule. Because if you, if you call it the way the rule is exactly written, things like formations uh, at the line of scrimmage, you you know, it would be a flag fest. I mean, we'd be there all day. So there are guidelines that, that, that help officials be consistent and, and not be over-officious. And, and I think we're at the point with the helmet rule. I, I don't think we know what those exactly are right now. And how will officials get that information? Is it something that just kind of bubbles up through trial and error? Is there constant guidance from the league office? How do the officials get to the point where by the end of the season, I assume they'll have a much better understanding than they do now as to how this rule should be applied? Um, what, what's going to happen is, is, is they'll look at these plays and that, that have been called and maybe some that aren't called. And, and they'll put them all together. They'll, they'll show them to the supervisory staff, and, and I'm sure some of the competition committee will look at it. And, and they'll, they'll formulate a guidance that, based on what they've seen and, and feedback from coaches and players as well, because they're, they're heavily involved in this, as to, as to what, is, what is reasonable and what isn't. And I think that's the important thing. What's going to be a reasonable guidance such that we, don't, you know, we, just, we just don't ruin our game in week one of the regular season, but we still maintain that safety uh, aspect that we're trying to achieve. 
One of the concerns I have about that, Terry, and I'd like to think that people at the league office share this concern with me. If you have the application of this rule changing throughout the course of the regular season and evolving, what was a penalty week one may not be a penalty come week 17. And some of those penalties may decide the outcome of a game. So how do you properly ensure the integrity of that given season if the the way that this rule is applied is going to potentially shift and change over time? That's, that is a very major concern. I am a big believer that, that once you start into week one of the regular season, that's the way it is through Super Bowl, period. There is, there's, unless there's something uh, catastrophic that happens that, that wasn't expected, you just leave the rules alone. You leave the guidance alone. But I, I don't think that's really the case anymore. I think, I think they are expecting that this and, and maybe some other things will evolve as the season goes on, and then by the time we're into midseason, they, they've got it down. I hope so. The sooner the better for everybody, obviously. Do you have a sense as to who's going to be ultimately shaping how this rule evolves throughout the course of the season? Mm-hmm. Al Riveron, obviously the senior VP of officiating and in charge of this process. There are others at the league office involved. But how high does it go above him to Troy Vincent, Jeff Pash, Roger Goodell? Will, will we know who's ultimately telling Riveron what the officials on the field are hearing week in and week out about how to enforce this rule? Well, there's no question Troy Vincent will be involved, as, as he should be. But I think it's going to be mostly Troy and Al Riveron, and, and then throw in John, uh, excuse me, Rich McKay of the competition committee, who's, who's head of the competition committee. I think he's going to play a big part, as well as other members of the committee, the coaches on the, on the committee that will play a big part as they look at these plays and try and establish firm guidelines for the officials uh, and the coaches and the players as well. I, I think it's a, it's a work. It, it's going to be um, that that group. I I don't know this, but I would speculate that the players' association will be involved as well as they should be. I've had the impression at times, Terry, that. The coaches have been told this isn't going to be a big deal. It's going to be limited to those plays you mentioned where it looks like it should have been a foul anyway under the existing rules. But that when Rich McKay talks about it, hey, this is going to be applied as written. And that disconnect is just lingering there. And and I feel like this could play out in a way that we get to the end of October into November and we look back and we say, why did we have any confusion at all? They're applying this rule exactly as it's written. You have to keep your helmet out of the fray, period, or you're going to be penalized. Yeah, that, that's that's certainly possible. And and I I, I assume you've seen the the videos, or at least some of our our, our, our listeners have seen the videos uh, from the coaches that are out there at the football operations people put out from Anthony Lynn and Todd Bowles and Doug Marone and and Mike Vrabel, and and they they really want just proper techniques. If we can get to that, if, if, this, if the league can get to players using proper techniques the vast majority of the time and not using their helmet as a weapon or lowering it and putting themselves in, at risk, then it may go away fairly quickly. It, it, this may just be an occasional play where a player makes a mistake and, 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 and doesn't use proper technique, but you know these these proper techniques have been around for a very long time, and if and if that's what's coached day after day, and players are penalized for it and realize that hey I got to do it right or I'm going to hurt my team, 
maybe that's what Rich McKay's looking for, and, and I hope he gets it. I, I, you know, that would be great if that could happen. Safer game, just as exciting as it is now. And here's the concern I have, and, and it also touches on the second helmet rule I want to talk to you about in a minute, but the idea that when it's time to play the game and you're in a position where your coach expects you to make a tackle as a defensive player, your target is moving. I saw the other night during the Bears-Ravens game, one of the Ravens players was penalized. He went in with the helmet low, and and the, the Bears player got even lower. And eventually you've got two guys who are about to collide, and their helmets are the, the first things that are going to make contact, rather, regardless of whether or not there's there's an intent to use the helmet as a weapon. So how do you actually execute proper form when the idea is get low, try to make a shoulder tackle, but at the same time, you may hit the guy with your helmet because he's squirming around as you're trying to get to him? Great question that I wish I could answer, but I, I'm not a coach, and I'm certainly not a player in the NFL. I, I think that would be a great question to ask them. Um, and, you know, because the coaches have been involved in this, those on the committee, and, and maybe they can answer that for you. I, I just don't think I can. It's a great question. That's why I can't answer how will you? How, how will you go about, because I noticed the other night the helmet rule was discussed a lot by Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth. It has to be. It's a new development, and a lot of people don't understand where it's going to go. For you, as you get ready for week one, Sunday night football, Packers, Bears, how will you get to the point where you have the comfort level necessary to be able to explain exactly what's going on if these flags are flying under circumstances where maybe we thought they wouldn't be? Well, I'm going to spend as much time as I can watching the preseason games and, and, and focusing on what's called and what isn't called. And, and hopefully, you know, the, the league will put out to the media, you know, what those final guidelines are, which of these are fouls, which of these are not. Because a lot of them are not going to be fouls because the officials have been told just to, just to throw, throw a flag, uh, if, if, if it's questionable that it, that, it, that it may apply to the new rule, and then they'll, they'll sort it out as, 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 as we go through the preseason. So hopefully as we watch that and we get into particularly week three of the preseason with a lot of the starters in that week, we'll have a better idea of what the league wants and what it doesn't want. And hopefully they'll share that with, with us in the media as soon as possible or as it's happening. It would really go a long way to, uh, to us being able to talk about it intelligently. I noticed that of the four penalties that were helmet-related on Thursday night, two were for lowering the helmet, two were for unnecessary roughness. And that brings me to the other new helmet rule. This is one that was not publicized. It's barely been discussed. I don't know if many people are even paying attention to it, but the NFL revised the provision in the unnecessary roughness foul that focuses upon use of the helmet. It used to say that unnecessary roughness arises if you use any part of a helmet or face mask to butt, spear, or ram an opponent violently or unnecessarily. Those terms, similar to what you were alluding to earlier, violence and a concept that there's an, an unnecessary element to the use of the helmet. Violently or unnecessarily is now gone. It's just gone. So any ramming, butting, or spearing of any portion of a helmet is now unnecessary roughness with a caveat that they added to the rule book that I didn't see until the official rule book came out, which is if it's incidental helmet contact while you're making a conventional blocking or tackling maneuver, it's not unnecessary roughness. To me, Terry, that's even broader than the lowering the helmet rule because it says nothing about lowering the helmet. It says nothing about initiating contact. And I think we could have even more fouls under that provision than the other one. I, I'm not sure I agree with that because the, the very words batting, spearing, and ramming, that almost implies, you know, some type of force. 
uh, in fact, a significant force in my mind. If you're going to ram somebody with your helmet, it's going to hurt. I mean, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to butt somebody or you're going to spear somebody, that implies force, forcible and, and, and punishing, in, in, at least in my mind. And my hunch is in the official's mind as well. So, so when you see those types of plays, and, 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 and they don't happen very often, that type, then, then I think you're going to – I think we'll all pretty much be in agreement that's a foul. I don't think you're going to see – just because there's helmet contact uh, that, 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 that is a little bit more than glancing, I don't think you're necessarily going to see a foul for those. But why would they remove the words violent or unnecessarily, which gets to where you interpret it? Just leave those words in there, and then we know it has to be something more than just inadvertent spearing, ramming, or butting with any portion of the helmet. That I do agree with you, and I wasn't privy to the conversations of, of, of what of how those got removed. Those words got removed. So, uh, you know, maybe 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 you can get Al River on on at some point or Troy and and, and find out what, what that what that exact reason was. One of the big questions for both of these rules, Terry, relates to play in the trenches. It was one of the concerns I had. And then in May, when Al Riveron was talking to the media, he said linemen are going to have to get their heads up, which confirms it does apply there. And in the fact sheet that the NFL put out recently, it, it confirms that these rules apply there. But how in the world, as an official out there, where I say all the time, the first instinct for anyone wearing black and white stripes is stay alive while trying to maneuver among these these monsters in, in, in armor and you're out there unprotected. So while you're trying to avoid getting trampled, you're trying to spot whether or not these fouls are occurring and in the trenches, as a practical matter, how are they going to see whether or not the helmet rules are being violated by offensive and defensive linemen? Well, as, it's interesting. As, as I watched uh, Doug Marone's video, Mike Rabel's video, and Dan Quinn's videos on, on this exact thing, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking, if I were still a referee on the field, how would I recognize that he lowered his head and made initiated contact as play is in progress, in real time? And, you know, without having done it in a preseason game or actually having done it right now, I'm not sure I know how they're going to do it. I, they may not know how they're going to do it. You do have keys. Each official does have a key. Um, the, the referee and the umpire, uh, you know, in the offensive backfield, they're on the periphery. They're watching the left tackle, right guard, left guard, et cetera, et cetera. So they are watching that, but you have to see the whole action. And since you have multiple players to watch, it's, it, it's, it's going to be difficult. I would say that's the least number of calls we're going to see is, is for linemen, offense or defense, lowering their head to initiate and make contact with the opponent. I just, even the pulling guard where it is kind of in the open somewhat, to, to recognize that in real time that, yes, he lowered his head, put his body in that linear posture and, and made contact, it's, this, is, this is going to be a difficult one to, to call in real time. And, and my hunch is we won't see many of those. Mike Pereira told me a few months ago that in his assessment, the most egregious of these fouls will be will be flagged in real time and there may be ejections. But for a lot of these, we're going to find out about them after the fact via fines imposed on the players. Do you agree with his assessment that it may just be we hear about a bunch of fines the following Friday and that maybe some of these or a lot of these just aren't going to be called as the games unfold? I, I absolutely agree. Uh Basically, there's been an unwritten guidance for, for NFL officials. The last resort is to, to, to disqualify a player. 
uh, and it, it's something we've lived by. They say it's that's that's evolved. They say it's okay for officials, but you really don't want to do it unless it's absolute. Unless it's the spitting, the hitting, the the punching, the kicking, the, the contact to an official. Unless it's the absolute, we just don't. We, we just didn't. I say, I say we because it's not me anymore. But we didn't disqualify players during a game, and then the officials, the uh, the, the league office handled it, handled it via fines. That's changed somewhat. Again, I would be, except for the most egregious one where you see the, the defender line up the runner who's being held up, and he runs five yards and just lowers his head and crushes him in the, in the face mask. It, unless it's one of those, I would be shocked to see a, a disqualification uh, uh, for use of the helmet rule. Do you like the idea that now, in addition to all of the other things where 345 Park Avenue can look over the shoulders of the referees and the rest of the crew, they can buzz the referee and disqualify a player, even if no one on the crew saw something that justified a player being ejected from the game? Well, they can only do it for non-football acts. The, um, the Evans play in Tampa Bay, New Orleans last year, the Gronkowski play uh, that everybody saw, I believe, in the Buffalo game. Those type of actions they can do it for. They can't do it for just plays during the game, just uh, for a, for a roughing the passer or for uh, a hit on a defense receiver. They can't do it for those actions. So, and I'm okay with that because once those things take place, there, you know, there's usually multiple in, players involved, and it may be difficult for the on-field, the seven on-field guys, to sort out who did what. So if 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 New York can help through the replay process, I think that is a good thing that we get the proper people uh, disqualified that should be. All right, let me shift over now to the kickoff formation. Dramatic change to that. After several years of, I think, trying to incentivize more touchbacks, the NFL has decided let's revamp the kickoff formation. As somebody who has been in position for those plays many times over the years, you hear about these new these new adjustments to the kickoff play, what concern would you have if you were having to officiate the new kickoff formation? It's mostly covering the return and knowing where the player started such that if a double-team block, uh, which is only illegal if it, if it includes one of the players who was not in the setup, the 15-yard setup zone, uh, it, then that would, you know, that would be, you'd have to know where he came from. Uh, and then, you know, picking up the illegal wedge blocks that are now illegal by anybody, two or more players coming together shoulder to shoulder and moving forward. You know, in, in, in the pile of players, those can be difficult, uh, but I don't think they're insurmountable. I don't think they're, 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 they're problems that, that, that can't be officiated through proper mechanics or, or figuring out what you're supposed to be watching where. So I don't think from an officiating perspective, it's that hard. Um, you may have some issues with onside kicks and when people can block and when they can't. Uh, but as far as officiating, I, I, I don't think it's a given, given how much I do like the rule change and, and what good I do, it does for that play. I, I think it's worth that, uh, you know, going through that, those um, issues. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to understand exactly what they're, they're shooting for here in these changes to the kickoff 
formation. They say it's concussions. I really think deep down they're they're concerned about avoiding that catastrophic injury that Kevin Everett suffered. It's been 10, 11 years now since that occurred, the Eric Legrand type injury, where two guys are running at each other full speed. They instinctively dip their helmets at the point of impact, and extra pressure is put in that C4, C5 area of the cervical spine, Mm -hmm. and a very, very serious injury can happen. What sense have you gotten over the years as to whether this is a concussion thing or this is a serious spinal cord injury thing? Thing as to why they're so intent on reducing the number of, of kickoff returns featuring high-speed collisions. Right. Yeah, I over the years, I moved into the category where I was ready to, to get rid of the kickoff. In both, in both my college football job and, and, and my NFL's referee, you would just see these massive collisions. And they have the numbers that show that the, there is just a significant risk of head and neck injuries on kickoffs. So, so they really did need to do something. When you see those on the field in real time, it, and you see, that, you see it setting up, you see it about to happen, and, and neither player is doing anything illegal, and now you have one or both, both players on the ground afterwards, or they do make it to the sideline and then they, you know, something happens to them there. It, these are serious injuries because these athletes, they're moving at each other at an extremely high rate of speed, and the and the and the, the potential for devastating injury, you know, like like you mentioned earlier, or just the normal concussions, which are bad enough, is is just too high to keep doing what we were doing. Another rule that has popped up that that really didn't get any publicity whatsoever, and I think that that it was mentioned during the broadcast last week, the idea that a player doesn't have to slide feet first to give himself up. A quarterback doesn't have to learn how to slide. I remember Mark Sanchez, Rex Ryan brought someone with baseball experience in to teach him how to slide because he didn't know how to slide. Now all you have to do is dive forward. Is that a rule that you that you think was necessary? And, and do you like the idea that, that someone can protect themselves and get down on the ground simply by diving forward? I, I actually do because what was happening is we've, players are getting very good about, about player safety. They understand the risks. So what we were seeing over and over again, when a player was going to the ground, the defenders would let up. They would just, you know, they don't want to take, first of all, take this chance of getting a foul and second, they don't want to put themselves or their opponent at risk there. But by giving, by by letting them just go to the ground, they were they were allowed to advance two, three yards, get more yardage without being hit. Uh, so it was really unfair. This is more about fairness for the defense uh, because they were really doing what we what what everybody wanted them to do, not injuring an opponent, and yet the opponent was able to gain yards out of it. So I, I actually was in, was in a lot in big favor of this. I would have gone further uh, for the, at least for the feet first slide. I'd give the, I'd give the offense the ball where he starts his slide. Then, then there'd be no reason to hit him ever under any circumstances. Would you ever need to hit a, a quarterback usually that's going down feet first? If you give him the ball right there where he starts his slide. Uh, they didn't do that, but you know, maybe someday they'll get to that. So how do we distinguish a player giving himself up and putting the ball in the spot where the, the, the dive begins versus a guy who's diving for the pylon and trying to score or diving for the first down marker on fourth and short? Because it sounds like this new rule may, may take away that touchdown or take away that first down. Yeah. Well, the way the rule certainly he gets it once his first body part, other than hand or foot, hits the ground. So, so it's not quite what I was saying earlier. You know where it starts. Uh, but 
it, you know, it, it is something that's going to happen. And, and I'm not sure it happens very often. How often does a player really go down toward the pylon where he's not being, you know, where there's not a defender trying to stop him? So I think that the chances near the goal line of, of him not being touched are, are pretty, pretty remote, pretty small. And I'm sorry that I misspoke, but still. So what we're looking at, and I'm trying to visualize how this would work. I think back to the Derek Carr play from last year when he dove at the at the pylon, and that was a completely different rule that ended up screwing that one up for the Raiders. It was the fumble forward out of the end zone rule. But if your knee hits before the ball gets to the goal line, then the ball goes where the knee struck the ground or where the ball is when the knee struck the ground. Or the foremost point of the ball when another body part other than hand or foot touches the ground. So you still get to where the ball is, wherever that the, you know, foremost point of that ball is. That's what that's where they're going to spot the football. And and the and, and kind of as a corollary, since you mentioned that play, if if Derek hadn't been touched and he loses the ball, well, he's not really going to lose the ball because he was already down. If if he, you know you can't this time, this way the ground can cannot cause a fumble in this particular case. So they would get the ball right where he was down, uh, and, and it wouldn't go through the end zone and, and get the ball to the defense. Isn't that just a horribly unfair, awful rule that they need to get rid of, but for whatever reason they refuse to? You can see where I stand I, I, on this one. <laughs> I, 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 I actually, look, you know, that's, that's the goal line. That's, that's where you're trying to get. And, and in my mind, if, if you fumble the ball through there, then you've screwed up. It's, it's on you. Even though the defense, I get it, the defense hasn't done anything to earn it other than maybe forcing the fumble. You know, maybe they did do something there. I, I just think, you know, you've got to protect the football at all costs when you get near the goal line and it adds a little, little more incentive maybe to do so. I understand your point, and, and, and it's hard for me to argue against it. I, uh, but it's interesting. They've been looking at it for years, and, 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 and at both levels, both college and the NFL, they've kept it the way it is. Uh, and and I, would, I just don't, I don't see it changing unless something happens that forces everybody, you know, the, the, the light bulb to go off and say, Mike Florio is absolutely correct we got to change this right now. And Terry, here's when it's going to happen. It's going to happen in an NFC championship game, an AFC championship game, or a Super Bowl, and, and it's going to affect the outcome. And the, the more casual fans who only watch a small handful of games every year are going to be up in arms because this has never occurred to them before, that if that ball had just bounced out of bounds at the one-inch line, the offense would still have it at the spot of the fumble. But because mm -hmm. it touched the pylon, because it crossed the goal line, the defense gets it at the 20. People, when, when millions of people at the same time shout that this is an unfair rule, that's when they're going to change it, almost like they did with the uh, the overtime, uh, the, the three-point field goal walk-off Saints-Vikings overtime. After that, they changed the rule, and it needed to be changed for 40 years, but it takes something like that for it to happen. That's usually the way it works, and, and the good thing, the best thing I can say about it, Mike, I won't be the referee for that game. Give me your best story, or as the case may be, worst story of of a call you made that had real world consequences for you in your regular job, out and about where you live, traveling at your house, or whatever the case may be. Well, I, uh, you know, if we have any Cleveland fans on, on uh, listening in, they already know what that is. You know, the, I guess they call it Bottlegate from 2001, my first year as a referee in the National Football League. Uh, I'm sure you remember the game. That, uh, 
that certainly uh, people people noticed that one for for a long time, and and actually the Cleveland people still remember it. So that would that would be the number one uh, incident. Number two, probably right behind it, 1998, my first year yeah, as a side judge in the NFL, and I call a pass interference against Buffalo on what they call a hail mary. I I didn't Bledsoe threw it from the 30 yard line going in. I don't know how how that's actually a hail mary. Uh, but uh, then I took took a lot of heat for that one back then. So those were the two big ones that kind of stuck with me for a, a really long time. How practical of concern is that, though, that, that you, you've got fans who are more invested than ever, and, you know, they, they can find out through the Internet where you work, where you live. They can, if they really want to cause a problem for you, they can. Is that a real concern among NFL officials? It's not. The, the NFL has, has a, an incredible security, uh, I don't want to say apparatus, but a security system where, where you know, they, they track those things and they get people involved if they happen. It never happened to me, uh, uh, knock wood, uh, maybe it will as a, as a rules analyst, I don't know. But, but it didn't. People, people generally, I, and I think it's just a rare situation when they cross the line from that incredibly great passion for their team and the sport into something that just is a little untoward. I, I just know that it, I've heard it happen, uh, you know, on occasion, but it gets nipped in the bud pretty quickly. Uh, and, and, and it's not something you can think about and still do this job uh, as, as well as people do it. As gambling is going to become legalized in as many states as choose to have it, how will that impact the pressure on the officials to get each and every call as right as possible? So there isn't some fluke like the Scott Green ruling from the Chargers-Steelers game, even though it didn't affect the outcome of the game from 2008, it affected the outcome of the betting with the spread. How big of a concern is that for officials as that, as that gambling virus is going to begin to spread from state to state? Yeah, I, I, I can only speak for myself, but maybe I can speak for everybody. That is not that is not even remotely a thought process for officials. When we go out there in real time, all you care about is getting the next play correct based on the rules and guidance that's out there. That's that's the only thing for that seven seconds that is ever going through your mind. Uh, and 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 for anything else, you know, whether it be coaches yelling at players, sports gambling, fantasy leagues, whatever. That just, that just is, it's, you know, if, if, if anything else is on your mind at that point, you're going to miss an awful lot of calls and you're not going to be in the league very long. So your, your whole focus is on getting the next play right, just like it is for players and coaches. So I, I think it's over, certainly from an officiating perspective. I realize the NBA had the, uh, the, the, the Donaghy situation a while back. I, I can't imagine a scenario where it, it would show itself in the NFL ever. How, how much do you wish you had stuck around for a year or two so you could enjoy officiating in an environment where we now know what a catch is? Well, um, I, I like to think, and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought catches up. I, I, do you think we put that to bed in the Hall of Fame game? No, what do you think, Mike? No. I'll, ask, no. I'll turn it on you. Almost. No. Did, did we do a? Did we go? I say we because I got to talk about it. But did, did New York in replay on the interception early in the game? And maybe you can ask your viewers. Maybe it's a great question. Did we at least do a little bit to alleviate that controversy? 
I, no, because it's the preseason. It doesn't matter. And the problem last year, and I think what really galvanized the the effort to get this rule fixed once and for all, is because I think from time to time Al Riveron wasn't properly reviewing catches versus non-catches. The Zach Miller non-touchdown, for example, that was a touchdown that 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 he overturned based upon a frame-by-frame a nanosecond by nanosecond analysis of the video. So I think that's the real concern. Week by week in the regular season and postseason, will the standards be applied properly? And I personally think that the rule's been revised to the point where it becomes even harder to overturn a catch. Um, but but I, I want to wait and see what happens because I think there were multiple mistakes last year that were just head scratchers from the league office overturning catches that look like catches. Right, and... And I'm going to say I hope that that example we had in the Hall of Fame game is the new standard, is the standard. If it is, then I think we've gone a long way, uh, as you know, both media and, and the NFL, then, then, then they've gone a long way into fixing this situation. Because I don't think, in my mind, the going to the ground part is, is, is not the issue and was not the issue last year. Uh, over the last four or five years with the going to the ground, it's been – it's been three or four plays, a handful of plays, Des Bryant, uh, Jesse James, and Calvin Johnson. Those plays, you know, they're controversial. They're big plays. I get it. But that's a hand. That's just, just a very small number of plays. The big issue last year, and you alluded to it very, very astutely, was really control. It's, it's, it's about the standard they used last year throughout most of 2017 to determine what was control or what was lack of control or what was loss of control. And, and I think they got somewhat technical throughout most of the year. And then later in the year, and certainly in the playoffs, I think that standard evolved into a reasonable standard. So you fast forward to the Hall of Fame game, the interception. I have, I have little doubt in my mind that that would have been reversed in week seven of the regular season last year. And, and, and thank goodness it's not anymore because uh, I could, Chris made a pretty good case, and, and I think that, that, that he didn't have complete control. I think I can make a pretty good case that he did, and in that case, the ruling on the field stands. If we could get stands out of that play that we're going to see over and over again throughout the course of 2018, if we see stands every time, then I think everybody's going to be happier. Everybody. I hope. And Terry, what's amazing to me, and you're right, what's amazing to me, and this is a point Walt Coleman recently made, the idea that that this isn't an officiating problem, it's a replay review problem, that, that the controversies arise where the ruling on the field is a catch, and then after further review, the decision is that it's not a catch. And I think that's been the most important point that's been overlooked through this process of reviewing these calls, forgetting what the standard is. It has to be indisputable visual evidence. It's not, what do I think now that I'm watching this with the benefit of super slow motion? It's, was the ruling on the field incorrect? And that's why I still, I say I had the argument with Dean Blandino after the, the Des Bryant game. It's like, Dean, I understand that that you think this wasn't a catch, but if you apply the standard, you have to defer to the guy who was standing right there watching Des Bryant make a football move. And it's not indisputable that he wasn't. And I think now that they're more sensitive to that, I think we're going to have fewer of these controversies. Exactly. And it may be a reasonable perception that last year there was almost a subconscious experiment. Well, can we, can we figure use replay to make the better call? You know, by, by whatever the rule is, 
you know, letter of the rule. Can we, can we use replay to get the better call? And, and I think that, that, you know, that perceived experiment didn't, didn't work out real well for him. So now we go back to, even if you're 90% sure the ruling on the field is wrong, nope, not enough. Got to be 100%. Got to, got to see absolute, un, indisputable loss of control, clear and obvious. That's the standard. Clear and obvious that that ruling's wrong, or you stay with it and you move on. That's, and I think fans, you know, because the, and because the ruling is going to be catch most of the time. So you get more, more great plays, more excitement, and you don't, you, you, I think there was just a feeling of, of from, from fans, announcers, and coaches and players of, okay, now we'll just start all over again. Just, it is what it is. Let, let the officials on the field make the call unless it's absolutely wrong. And this is bringing back bad memories, too, because Dean always makes the point they don't want to have more fumbles in the middle of the field. It's How often is that going to happen where a guy is running, catches the ball, and there's no defender around him, so when he stumbles to the ground and loses possession of the ball, it's a live ball that he's not going to be able to recover. Let's get, that's going to happen once every three years. And that was the thing they were concerned about. They don't want to have loose balls out there that guys are diving on. And, you know, they're probably going to dive on them anyway in those circumstances. So I, I just I didn't like any of the justification for the, the shifting of the rule. And I think it is going to be improved. And uh, last year, at least they got it together for the Super Bowl. But really, I think both those calls in the Super Bowl, and I heard you mention those on Thursday night, the Corey Clement catch, the Zach Ertz catch, based upon the standards that were created during the season, I thought both of those were incomplete because based on how Al Riveron was overturning plays, those both seemed like plays he would potentially overturn in real time in the Super Bowl. Right. I would say yes to that on the Corey Clements play, but the Zach Ertz play, I was, I was surprised the game was even stopped. There is nothing about that play that is even remotely close to an incomplete pass. It is not the Jesse James play. Zach Ertz caught the ball and ran toward the end zone and dove. He wasn't going to the ground to complete the catch in any stretch of the imagination. Like I said, I was shocked the play was the the the, the, the play was, game was even stopped to look at that. There is nothing. Again, let me repeat: there is nothing about that play that is an incomplete pass. If you compare that to, to 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 Jesse James, yeah, they're both in the middle of the field. They're both catching the football and they're both moving the end zone. But but Jesse James was going to the ground as he was controlling the football. Zach Ertz had the football and started running and dove, and, and, and I just don't even think it's close. It's even remotely close to a play that should have been looked at. What's the most difficult call for you to make as an official out on the field as it's happening? Uh, I, I guess for me, I, for me as a referee, it was, it was roughing the passer uh, because you know, the, the defenders, you've got so many people attacking the quarterback from so many different directions. And if your eyes shift one way, one way, and then somebody comes up the middle out of nowhere, it just happens in real time. And, and, you, and you're really in a lot of trouble. So, so for that, for me, it was, it was, it was that call uh, was, was extremely difficult. Pass interference, illegal contact, those are certainly difficult for the, for the downfield and the, and the line of scrimmage officials that are dealing with those as well. Don't you think there should be? I give I give away my position in all these questions. Don't you Don't you agree with me that, that there should be an ability to have replay review on pass interference? Because even though it's ultimately a judgment call, 
there are situations where clear and obvious evidence shows that the judgment was just completely and totally poorly exercised. I remember Thanksgiving last year, Stephon Diggs got blown up by a defensive back uh, when the ball was coming in, no flag thrown whatsoever. And, and I mean, you know, if it's there to correct mistakes and when you look at the consequences of pass interference on a deep pass, why shouldn't that be something that can be looked at at 345 Park Avenue? Well, you may be surprised, but here's one where I'm, I'm going to disagree with you on. Uh, re, that's not what replays for. I mean, sports is, is, is about humans. It's about humans playing the game, coaching the game, and, and, and officiating the game. And mistakes are every bit as important as, as, as the great situation. Great call or a mistaken call, a great uh, pass versus a, a you know, thrown to the wrong guy and it's intercepted. It's all part. If, if I, I, I firmly believe if you try to perfect, use technology to perfect any aspect of the game, uh, then fan, it's going to turn fans off. What are they going to talk about the next day? You know, you've got to have that humanness, that human element of, 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 of people out there trying to do their best but then the human, the human frailties, uh, something goes wrong. And, yeah, sometimes they're big, and sometimes they really matter a lot. Replay the black and white things, the, 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 the catch, no catch, the, the, the touchdowns, did he, did he break the plane or not, those are good ones to fix. I mean, I, I'm, I'm perfectly okay with that. You never want to get on the plane, and, and knowing replay could have corrected that. But, but when it comes to those judgment calls, and, and, and you point out ones that may be obvious, but then you get down the slippery slope. Where does it end up? Where do you draw the line? And, and I think once you start down that slope, you don't ever draw the line, and then you, you've ruined the game. There's been a lot of talk about Terrell Owens. Randy Moss both entered the Hall of Fame this past weekend. Which guy was easier to deal with on game day? As I recall, neither one of them were difficult. I, I, again, as a referee, they were receivers. I rarely had any any interaction with either one of them, but I don't recall uh, having them on the field in any game where, where they didn't just play football. I, I just don't, don't, don't rec I can't recall anything. Who stands out as the guy that was the most difficult for you to deal with when you had to handle one of his games, coach or player? Um, well, I, I think I'm going to wait till I write my book on difficult players. Oh. <laughs> uh, and I, and I, let me give you, and, and I know, it's, it, I, I, I'm still in the business, and I still have, an, have a tremendous respect for, for almost everybody I work with uh, in the playing and the coaching world. They're, they're in, as a general rule, they're really t terrific people. They're, yes, there are a handful of exceptions that I almost don't want to say because I don't want to draw attention to them. Uh, I, I want to focus on really the, the, the great people in the game uh, that, that I've worked with over the years and in and, and both coaches. Now, that doesn't mean they don't get upset with me. That don't mean they didn't yell at me and, and got emotional or whatever, but they were still good people to work with throughout the course of the game, and it was never anything personal. Uh, so I really like to focus on that aspect. You know, I, I said it last week in, a, in an interview that, that, that these are people you want to be your next-door neighbors. They're that good. And, and that's really, really where I like to focus on this game. And that be, that's coaches, officials, uh, uh, and, and players. They're just really good people trying to do the best in an incredibly emotional business and, 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 and are able to maintain uh, their, their good natures in, in most cases. Let me flip it around then. Who was the player or coach where you looked forward to the day that you're handling one of his games? 
Uh, there were there were so many. It started off, I guess, in my early years with Bill Parcells. He was just somebody that you watched and, and, and really had a tremendous amount of respect for how he did his job. Uh, if, if, if the, the whole thing, the, the saying was from the, the guys that have been around a long time, if, if he had a problem with something you did, you, you really probably made a mistake and you better listen. Kind of thing. And that's true with a lot of them. You know, the Andy Reeds, the, 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 the Ron Rivera's, and, and I, 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 I'm, I'm loathe to mention some people because I'll leave a lot of people out. But those types of people, the Dave Wanstets, the. Uh, uh, just, just they were terrific. The Bill Cowers, you know, people thought Bill Cower was was terrible with officials. He was never terrible with officials. He had, may have an emotional reaction, but he was terrific to work with. He got it out of the system, and moved on, and that's generally what we are always kind of look for. We'll deal with you. We'll deal with the problem. But those that kind of let it drag on and on, and then called the boss Monday morning, those were the ones that that, that we really kind of struggled with. How long before kickoff would some of these guys start working you, right? Because I don't think it's something that just begins at kickoff. I think the first time you see them anywhere, that's when you start hearing whatever it is that they're concerned about for the upcoming game. You do, and, and actually that's changed over the years. Uh, there was a time in the early, two, uh, well, before maybe mid-2000s, where, where you it was never discussed what, what concerns there might be other than plays we might be run that, 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 that might cause problems or something like that. But, but along that time, you know, uh, Mike Pereira and I spent a lot of time talking about it since I was a referee then. Well, maybe, maybe we do need to have concerns. Maybe we knew, do need to start scouting and, 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 and looking at the game that about, we're about to work. In fact, I learned it. Uh, one of my really good friends is, a, is, is a, uh, an NBA referee, Scott Foster, and I asked him what their pregames were like, and he said, all we look at is matchups, and, and kind of the light bulb went off. Well, maybe that's what we should do as well. So it went from, from in the mid-2000s, starting with looking at formations and center movement, things like that, routes they might run, into a full-blown scout of the teams we were going to work. And now it's gotten so much, you know, that coaches send in plays, and, you know, we get, uh, as a referee, we would get them. And then we tell the coach, yep, we looked at your plays. We understand your concern. And, and they, they so much appreciated the fact that officials are now are prepared to work their game. And we pick up – in fact, it goes even further than that. We pick up things on video uh, the, the day before, the week before, and we'll bring it to that coach's attention. Uh, and I'll give you an example of this. We, uh, I, I had the, the Atlanta-San Francisco championship game as you recall, really a great football game uh, several years ago. And we had watched uh, the Green Bay-San Francisco uh, divisional game. And what we noticed was that almost on every play, the, the, the San Francisco secondary, the defensive backs, were on the edge, close to committing a foul at the end of – in fact, I picked about 30 plays where they'd done something. We looked at that. We went out the next day, and a couple of our officials talked to their defensive backs. They knew exactly what we were talking about, and, and not a single one of them came even close to committing a foul. So that, that, that's the kind of thing that's happening now that really I don't think anybody understands. Between the, the information we get from coaches, between the, the, the scouting the officials do on their own, uh, between the coaches that work in the office, uh, Chuck Pagano's in there this year. Mike Smith has been in there in the past. Jeff Pierce has been in. There. You know, all these things are, are they're, they're getting to us ahead of time, 
so we can be better prepared to work the game. And it really goes a long way because the last thing you want to do on Sunday afternoon is be surprised. I know that's a long-winded answer, but but it's really important. No, I loved it. That's what this format is for, and it reminded me of something that, that I was going to ask you earlier. You mentioned that Atlanta-San Francisco 2012 NFC Championship game. The next year is when the Seahawks ran roughshod over the NFC and ultimately won the Super Bowl. And that year, there was a theory that the Seahawks' defensive backs were manhandling receivers and essentially daring the officials to flag them, knowing that the officials aren't going to throw a flag on every single play and bog down the game. Is that a real dynamic for officials that you just you get to a point where the flag gets pushed down a little bit deeper because you don't want to be every single play, every single play throwing a flag on the same on the same type of penalty? To some extent, you're you're absolutely right, because, you know, and this here's for your, your, your listeners. We really don't like to throw flags. Officials don't like to throw flags. I keep saying we because I, I used to do that, and that's what I did forever. But officials do not like to throw flags. If, if we could have a game where there are zero flags, that's the best game ever. If you get only a handful, three, four, five, uh, terrific. Nobody likes those. Players don't, coaches don't. That being said, if it's a foul, it's a foul. If it's a foul week one of the regular season in the first quarter, then it's a foul in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. That's my personal opinion. That's the only way you can be consistent uh, week to week, team to team, crew to crew, based on the guidelines. And then if there's if we miss one, you just miss it because you're human. Uh, I had you know I had the Tampa Bay Oakland game, thirty three fouls, twenty three of them by Oakland, maybe maybe more than that, but they were all there. And and yeah, we probably missed some more. Gen- generally, there's more fouls than are called. I can guarantee you that is almost always the case. There's almost almost always more fouls that have been committed than are called because we're not going to see everything, and we want to make sure what we do call is absolutely correct. Um, but, again, if it's going to be one of those 33 fouls, well, that's just what it is. And, and my, my fundamental principle was the teams decide how many fouls there are, not the officials. And, and I, I admire that approach, but I feel like whether it's football, basketball, or hockey, when you get into those big games, when you get into those big moments, there is a palpable sense of letting the guys play and not throwing fouls that, that, that maybe would have been called week two of the regular season. And I just feel like that's where human nature takes over. And, and I don't know, did, did you ever get that sense that people on your crew were, were more reluctant to throw that flag because of the circumstances when the play occurs? Well, you, you, you definitely always want to make sure you're right. If you throw a flag, you want to make sure it's correct. And, and certainly in the big games, there's, there's, there's a bigger magnifying glass on those. But, but I don't know of anybody that really went into that. And I'll, I'll take you back to Super Bowl 43 uh, 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 in Tampa between Arizona and Pittsburgh. As you may recall, there were a lot of flags in a Super Bowl. My hunch, is, my hunch is the most this has ever been. But that was the game that was presented to us by those two teams. They were, you had Ken Wisenhunt coming from Pittsburgh who helped design the uh, you know, aggressive uh, style of play that they had. So they weren't, he wasn't going to let you know, Pittsburgh bully them. Pittsburgh certainly wasn't going to be bullied. So we had a lot of fouls early on in, in the game that that uh, that we just had to call, 
and, it, and, and, and we did take a little bit of heat from it, but our crew knew what we had to do, and I think it set us up. It set us up for a tremendous second half where we didn't have those. Had we not called those in the first half, maybe gotten the game under the control like we did, we wouldn't have had that great second half. So any official that goes in there that, that, that thinks, well, I'm not going to call anything because this is the NFC Championship game, they're, they're doing a disservice to the game. I mean, if nothing happens, great. But if it does, you've got to be ready and you have to throw the flag if it, if it, if it presents itself. Before I let you run, and I really do appreciate you taking so much time, Terry, to give us meaningful answers, to engage in this back and forth. I think it's very valuable to the listener. It's very valuable to me. September 9, Sunday, you're going to wake up and you're not going to be putting on your black and white stripes. You're going to be putting on a suit. You're going to be with Alan Chris. What, 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 what are you going to be missing the most? What's that regret you're going to have knowing that for the first time in 20 years, you're not going to be officiating an NFL game on week one? Number one has to be the other six guys. Well, seven counting the replay official. Uh, being with them for that weekend. Uh, they're, they're a family. They're an extended family away from home. Uh, you're with them for 19 weeks of the year. And I was so lucky uh, for most of my career that, that we always got along. And, and, and you got into late December and you still wanted to be together. You couldn't wait to get on the plane to be with this extended family. Uh, that has to be the number one thing I'm going to miss because I loved every minute of the, even when the, the, the chips were down, when things maybe didn't go well in a game, we still had each other and, and, and we became very, very close over the years. My, certainly my best friends, uh, uh, were, were fellow officials and, and, uh, and, and, and they still are, even though, you know, I'm media now and they're not, but, uh, uh, that, that has to be the, the, the thing I'm going to miss more than anything. You're one of four referees to have decided to move on after the 2017 season, and it was later in the process for you. What, what, what was the key factor? Why did you decide that now was the time to step away? Uh, it was really the opportunity. Uh, I had had you know, forever this, the, the greatest respect for, for what Fred Goodelli, the, you know, the producer of, of, of Sunday Night Football, and Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth, and the whole crew has done. Uh, it, it, it was always, you always knew that from a production standpoint, your game was going to be great. He wasn't going to interfere. He was going to do what he needed to do. So we, and I, and I think maybe he, uh, since I am, since he did hire me, that this was kind of a mutual respect, but that was an opportunity. That was the next challenge. I'd done this for 20 years. Uh, you know, three Super Bowls, eight championship games. I, I, I pretty much done it all. And yeah, I had, I had years left. But this challenge, and, and, and it's, it's, there, there is definitely pressure because I understand the, the world today. Everybody listens to everything I said. I say, and I'm going to have critics and, and all that stuff. So it was that next challenge uh, that I can continue doing for hopefully many years to come with a great, and, and, you know, I was within the Hall of Fame game. I was, I was, in, I was awestruck at, this, at, this pro, at, this, at, this, at, the, at what they do, their process, how they handle everything, everything about it. Uh, just, just was incredible, and and they they treated me, uh, you know, just just like one of the family again. Uh, so, you know, as, as I thought about it, it was just the next step. And I'll say one more thing, and now it gives somebody else, one of those new referees, the chance to to, to maybe have the career I had. And, and I think well, everybody, when you get to a certain point, has got to has got to have that in their mind. Hey, this is a tough year to be breaking in as a referee. I don't know that I'd wish that on my worst enemy with all these changes. 
you know, <laughs> officials make, make adjustments. They've done it their whole career. Now they're going to be new referees. That's an adjustment. And it's going to be probably the toughest one they've ever made. But, but you, you, you learn as you get to this level, you, it's either in-game adjustments, it's new rules adjustments, it's new supervisors adjustments, new vice president adjustments. You're always making adjustments. And then you just go out and try to get the next play right. So I, I really, you know, I wish them the best. I think they're going to be great, and, and, and they'll, they'll have a good season. Uh, you know, my first season, I got bottle thrown in Cleveland. So it's got to be better than that. Uh, I hope, I hope, I hope it can't, I hope it's not any worse. Well, I'll tell you what, Terry, I, I think you're going to be great. And I was going to close by wishing you a great season, but that implies we're not going to be talking again. But unfortunately, you're going to have to deal with me. That will be the part of this that you won't miss when you're done at NBC is dealing with me on a regular basis. But we look forward to talking to you and as because this is going to be a work in progress for a lot of people. And you're going to be a great resource for the audience as to how these things are unfolding, how the game is adjusting week after week. And I look forward to working with you, Terry, and I wish you all the best and hope to do this again real soon. Feel the same way, Mike. I love the back and forth, which you can probably already tell already. So uh, I can't wait for our next uh, controversy to, uh, to come up. All right. Look forward to it, Terry. And thanks again, pal. Thanks, Mike. Talk to you later. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.